Hey, church family, it's so good to be back with you guys today. Man, let me just say a word of thanks to Joel Bench for stepping in last week and bringing a word and keeping us in this Colossians series. I always benefit from when Joel teaches, just the, the calmness he brings, and just he's such a good guy. I'm so thankful for him, the way he and his family serve here at this church and serve the Lord well beyond Greenville, Texas. And so you're going to want to thank him uh, for stepping in, for filling in, and for the way that he served, if you haven't done already. already. Hey, this morning we're going to continue in our study of Colossians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, as we begin to make our way uh, into the second chapter this morning. Now, one of the things that as we begin now to change our trajectory in some sense and begin to think of what it's going to look like for us to come back into this place on May the 24th, kind of becomes this issue of what have we done in the interim time? What has our private time been spent in doing? Have we just kind of searched for the end of Netflix? Have we looked for the bottom of Disney Plus? Have we found the end of Amazon Prime? What, is, what have we done in that time? And some of us, we have been incredibly productive. Some of the DIY projects that you guys have done have been uh, just phenomenal. They've been really impressive, and I really need you to come to my house and finish the swing set that I haven't finished. That would, be, that would be really helpful and phenomenal. Uh, we could socially distance. I could be inside. You could be outside. And so it, it's just been neat to see some of the ways that some of us have used this time, but others of us, I mean, if we're honest, if we think about the ways we've used this time, uh, we've used them to panic. We've used them to worry. We've used them to indulge our kind of basest elements. We've found sin winning a victory instead of finding ourselves being readied to step back into this. And, and instead of finding ourselves moving and advancing the gospel, we've put pause on the gospel, its effect in our lives, and seeking to be an effect in the lives of those around us. This passage we have before us today, Paul calls on this church there in Colossae not to bemoan the onslaught of heresy, but to look at the heresy and to say, we will not be moved away from Jesus, we will not be deterred from pursuing Jesus, and we will advance the cause of Jesus. Let's read Colossians 2, 1 through 5, and then we'll talk and discuss as we work through. Paul writes and he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delead you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of of your faith. Let me pray for us once more as we begin to walk through this. Father, I'm thankful for the sure promise of your word, for its power, for the change it's affected and affecting in us, and for the change you desire for it to bring in the lives of those who have yet to submit to your Son as Savior and Lord. So God, would you help us to focus on your word? Would you give us a spirit of application, a spirit of submissiveness to your word. Would you cause us to delight in you? And God, I pray that your name would grow in renown and that we would be strengthened by the power of your spirit through time spent in the study of your word. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, just for a minute, let's look back at chapter 1 and verse 25. In 1 and 25, Paul is relating kind of his role to this 
Colossian church. Speaking of the church, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, for what purpose? To make the word of God fully known. So Paul's relationship to this church there in Colossae is not one of a planter. It's not one who came in and started this church, but he knows about them. He knows about them from Epaphras. And his desire for them is that his investment in this church would produce mature followers in Jesus Christ. And this is what he says in verse 28. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present, who? Everyone mature in Christ. And so Paul's desire is not just to win people to the Lord. Paul's desire is to strengthen them in the Lord, to grow them in the Lord, and to present them full, final, and mature. And so he said this uh, about everyone, verse 28. That's the word he uses over and over and over again. Everyone, everyone, everyone. But look at what he does in verse 1. He takes this thing which lives kind of in the abstraction of the everyone, just kind of out there, it's over here and over there, and he brings that to bear on them personally. And so the church that Paul describes in Colossians 2, 1 through 5, it is empathetic, it's unified, it is Christ-dependent, and it is ready. Look at what he talks about, the church that is empathetic. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Isn't this curious? Like Paul, who is just a verse or two before, just talking about how it's everybody and it's everybody and it's everybody, brings it down and he brings it to bear on this church, on these individual churches, these churches that he has no relationship with. He's not nurtured them, he's not cared for them, he's not planted them, but still he says, I have struggle. The word there is the same as the word in the previous verse, that he has agonized over these churches. Chapter 4 tells us that he is in prison. We read in, 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 in 2 Corinthians and have this understanding when Paul talks about all the various things that he's gone through, shipwreck and beating and hunger. At the end of that list, he said, also the anxiety I face for all. Paul is captivated in praying for people that he knows, and Paul is captivated in praying for people that he has not yet met. What a terrific sense of empathy. He's struggling for people that he's not met. He's struggling for people that have not met him. Being a believer and follower of Jesus Christ gives us the capacity to care for people that we've not met. A couple of months ago, I had opportunity to be in Africa at the time that there was a massive locust swarm. Now, this swarm, I just want you to kind of understand how large it is. And, and this swarm was roughly the size of the state of Oklahoma. Now, why Oklahoma? Well, why not? And so, it, but it's the size of the state of Oklahoma, and it was doing mass devastation all across eastern Africa. But today, the children of that swarm are once again beginning to thrive in this new swarm of locusts. is isn't going to grow just to the size of the state of Oklahoma, but it's going to grow to be 20 times that size. And the devastation this swarm is going to bring to Africa, just listen to me. By the end of its time, by the end of their eating crops, by the end of their decimating the food stores for those people, many of whom live in a subsistence lifestyle, they don't plant to thrive and start businesses, they plant so they can eat. At the end of this time, in the life cycle of this swarm, nearly 130 million people will be at the brink of starvation. 
That's a large number. That's a number maybe so large that you have a hard time understanding it, but I want you to kind of take it in terms of our culture and our experience here. There are roughly three times that many people living in the U.S. today. So imagine that as you walk down the street, every third person is going to be facing starvation in the next coming months. Now, if you're anybody, if you're Joe Schmo agnostic atheist living on the street, you hear that, and, and you could be sad for these people. But Christian, the Holy Spirit at work in you gives you the capacity to be broken for these people. It, it gives you the capacity to take on their plight. It gives you the capacity to take on their sorrow. It gives you the capacity to take on their hurt and then to be driven to do something about it. You see, we're not called just to be invested and involved in the lives of the people we're close to and some of us very close to over the last few weeks. But as a Christian, you're called and you've been given the capacity to care for people you may never meet. Who would God put on your heart? What mission would God place before you that you don't even know them? You've not even heard of them. You've not even heard of their struggle. But today, the Holy Spirit desires to do a work in your heart to bring you this people's name, to bring you this people's location. I mean, we as a church, we continually want to put before you opportunities for service. This is why we put before you the Georgian Hunger Project to be able to work to send uh, food and stores to provide for a people that you may never meet. Why? Because that's what being a Christian calls us to be. That's what it is to live in submission to Christ, is to care for people we may never meet because we recognize that they are all made in the image and likeness of God, and God cares for them deeply. Amen? Man, we want to be an empathetic church. We want to be moved for those far and, and distant that we may never meet. And some of us, we don't have to go far. We don't have to go distant to find people we've never met. We can look at the house next door. We can look at the person checking us out behind the plexiglass and the mask at Walmart. We can look at the people pushing carts at Home Depot and Lowe's. We can look at the people in the restaurants. We can look at our neighbor who's lost their job. We can look at the person who recently put a for sale sign in their car because they can no longer make the payments for it. We have been given an opportunity today to meet real needs of people close and to meet real needs of people far. Will we be a church that's empathetic? Will we merely be satisfied to continue in apathy and relative indifference because I'm okay? Because nobody I know is suffering. And this is an opportunity. Look for needs and you're going to find them. Find needs and move to meet them in the power and the goodness of our God. This is what he has his church for to make a difference in this world today. Let us set this world, let us set this county and this city on fire with the urgency and the fervency of the gospel moving forward and caring for people that would say, why would you care for me? And you said, because my God cares for me and he compels me to care for others. Let us be those who struggle and struggle greatly. We need to be a church that's, that's unified to accomplish this. Paul recognizes that the single greatest threat to this church in Colossae is soft belief, heresy. Those things which are not true about God, which are not true about Christ, which place external regulations upon them, telling them you need to eat this way or you need to not eat that way. Imposing dietary restrictions, looking, the, looking at the heavens and saying, do you see this? See how the stars are moving? This tells us this about God. This tells us that about God. And so putting all of these externals and bringing them to bear and making them requirements of a proper understanding of God. And Paul recognized these things are devastating to this church. And what is the solution he provides? He says, it's unity. It's unity. 
It's not just that, that one person or two people need to believe the right thing, but you all together. He says, I'm struggling for you that you might believe the right thing, that your hearts may be encouraged. We get this sense of, of, of Paul's empathy. We get this sense of his urgency in 2 Corinthians 1.6. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which we experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. We need to be unified. Our empathy needs to be such as that we're engaged in this same pursuit together. And it's so that they might be strengthened. So that this church, this group of people together, that they might come together to seek to be impactful together. It's so incredibly important. How are they going to be strengthened? How are they going to be encouraged? Look at what he says. He says you're going to get there by being knit together in love. Being knit together in love. Other translations and other ways of understanding this are taking two objects and infusing them, bringing them together, kind of welding them together. And he says love is what accomplishes this. And how have we received love? We love, we have received love through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. God has loved us through Jesus. He has brought us and made us one church, one body. Christ is the head. And in this, we are being knit together in love. Now, here's the great thing, right? This isn't a, a set of rules and regulations whereby they say, all right, well, I need to be at church at this time. I need to be in my pew at this time. I need to say these things. Ah, I'm five minutes late. I guess I'll just go home because it's impossible for me to be knit together in love because I haven't abided by these set things. It's this decidedly passive idea and understanding that if you will submit yourself to God, if you'll allow His Holy Spirit to be at work in your heart, you will be knit together in love with other Christians. And if you'll do that, then we'll be strengthened. Some of us might find ourselves in this time, in any time really, seeking to advocate and seeking to be a proponent of our own ideology of our own particular thing but what we see for the church to move forward well requires the unification of the church it requires us to take this idea from philippians chapter 2 to look not only to our own interests but to the interests of others considering them much more significant than ourselves amen i can just tell you this is so incredibly easy as long as you agree it's so incredibly easy as long as you agree, as long as you say, I really like that, that's sound wisdom, I really appreciate that. But the moment you don't like it, you say, well, they may go that way, but I'm not going to. Man, there are reasons and opportunities for us to rebel. If, if you hear heresy, absolutely push back against that. But if your disagreement merely stems from a preference, then that's not you advocating your own autonomy, that's you actively working against unity. This is what he says here. If we're going to be empathetic and be active and be involved and be powerful in our community, then we need to submit ourselves to God who is uniting us. And he's doing it in love. To what degree, to what end is he doing this? He says, it is to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ Jesus. We need to be Christ-dependent. We need to be Christ-dependent. We need to be empathetic. We need to be unified. We need to be Christ-dependent. Notice that in the midst of this, he didn't tell them, what you really need is this amazing program. What you really need is this amazing set of principles to apply. He said, in the midst of this, what you really need is Jesus. 
those who were attacking this Colossian church were telling them that they had this, this failed understanding of the universe and how the world worked. That if they merely understood how the world worked better, if they merely understood all of this additional knowledge, that then they would have a right relationship with God. And so Paul just moves in and he just completely dispels all of these, these things. He says, listen, when you're moving forward and being strengthened together because you're being knit together in love, this is what the offshoot of that is. It's going to produce spiritual maturity in you. To what degree? That you're going to reach all the full assurance of understanding. In essence, you're not going to waffle. You're not going to be in the midst of this thinking, I, I, I don't know what to believe and I don't know what to follow. Why? Because you're not on your own developing theology, but the church that you're a part of is developing theology from a right reading and a right application of the word. The way these things work, the way these things operate is together, in unison together. And he says, and it's the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The fact that in the fullness of time, God has sent his son to be sin, to take on the, the punishment of sin and death for you, for me, that we might receive reconciliation from God, that Christ died and that God raised him up from the dead, and then he invites all of humanity to come and know him. There is no knowledge beyond Jesus. There is no wisdom beyond Jesus. Look at what he says next in this idea of being Christ-dependent. He says, it is in Christ, verse 3, in whom we are all, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Man, there is no end to the pursuit of knowledge. You can read Ecclesiastes. There's no end to the pursuit in some sense of wisdom. The number of, of searches uh, over the internet over the last few weeks of trying to understand uh, epidemiology, to trying to understand uh, any number of things. Germ theory. There's no end to the pursuit of these things. As we've sought to be well informed, but look at what Paul tells us here. He says we need to be sure fundamentally that we recognize that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We'll never get to a point, we'll never be at a place where we are outside of Christ's control, his provision. Do you remember back to Colossians 1, 15 through 20? He is preeminent. He is before all things. In him, all things cohere. This is what Paul's offering a defense of here. But he says this curious thing in verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Jesus, in the midst of Matthew chapter 13, begins to take up this same idea or the same concept of a treasure being hidden. And he gives us the intensity that we should devote to a pursuit of Christ. In Matthew 13 and verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. So we get the sense that this guy's just kind of walking along, he's minding his own business, he's, he's whistling a song, no telling, I, I would definitely be whistling. And so he's in the midst of this, and he just kind of trips. He stubs his toe, he trips, he falls, he turns back around, he's looking for a tree root, and he doesn't see one, he sees something sticking up out of the ground, so he begins to kind of dig around it, excavate, and he opens it up, and lo and behold, it's full of treasure. 
So he's overwhelmed at the idea of treasure, but he also recognizes that some other hapless nitwit may come along and stub their toe and find the treasure. And so he's taking dirt, and he's just kind of mounting it back on top of it. He goes, and he says, everything I have, everything that is liquid, I'm going to sell so I can buy this field. Why? Because in that field was true treasure. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. When we find Jesus, okay, when we find Jesus, we haven't found something to add to our lives. We haven't found some method of life enhancement. When we find Jesus, we found it all. Everything in our life pales in comparison to his supremacy and his worth. Everything in life, every, every dictate, every dream, every hope, every aspiration falls, fails at the foot of the cross and in our submission to him. This is what our God calls us to. He calls us to be faithful followers of a flawless Savior. This is what he calls us to. That you would look at all the various things that you've said in your heart, all the things you've hoped for, all the things you're desperate for. For some of us, it's returning to work. For others of us, it's our kids going back to school in the fall, not in our homeschool. All of these things fail in the pursuit of following Jesus. What are you tempted to set your hope on? What are you tempted to set your treasure on? What is the thing you're willing to sacrifice for right now? How's the Holy Spirit moving and stirring in your heart in this time and showing you all the various ways you have been satisfied and kept your anxiety at bay during this time of quarantine? For some of us, it's the mindless pursuit of busyness. For some of us, it's drugs or alcohol. For some of us, it's physical pleasure. All of those things fail. All of those things and all of those pursuits are empty. Jesus is worth it all. Jesus is worth it all. We need to be Christ-dependent. We need to be Christ-dependent, but we also need to be ready. Paul says in verse 4 and filling into verse 5, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you, no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. Now, they were facing people who came up to them, and, and the interesting thing is they wouldn't say things that they would just be able to dismiss right away. If they were to come up and say, you know, did you know that Jesus was a time traveler from the future who came here? Uh, he was in collaboration with Elon Musk, and he accomplished all these various things. And there's going to have this thing called the internet and a Tesla truck, which is definitely going to be a bad idea. Those windows are not, in fact, shadow resistant. And so if they were to come up and to say those things, they would know that would be wrong. They would know that would be false. But they come up and they say things in such a way that gives them the impression that, ah, man, I'm just not sure if this is false. I'm just not sure if this is not true. In fact, it sounds pretty alluring. It sounds pretty appealing. And what you'll find is, is that most cults and most sects operate this way. So you can think of Jehovah's Witnesses, you can think of, of Mormonism that comes in, that takes a fraction of Christianity, that borrows some of the language from Christianity, it turns it and twists it, and it presents it as truth. And it says that both of these things operate within the same sphere, and you can believe this. So begin to see how it works. Now, how these things operate within our lives are in kind of three realms. There are a number, but let's think about three. And, and so one of the ways that we are deluded, one of the ways that we are deceived, one of the ways we see ourselves led astray is in bad theology, pragmatism, and modeled apathy. Bad theology. 
at the very beginning of this, and, and so we're just going to hit on a couple of examples, and I'll handle those emails later. But at the very beginning of this, there was this video of Kenneth Copeland, and he's in there, and one of them, he's just straight up rebuking COVID-19, and I command you to leave. And, and then there's another one where he's blowing it away, blowing into the camera, and then he has this kind of choir of men beside him, and so he blows, and they blow with him. But that's just silliness. There's no foundation in Scripture that accords him with that. And what we find in, in, in many of the people that are kind of in that vein of kind of, you say it and God is compelled in heaven. He's like, well, I was going to take a lunch break, but I guess he said it, so I'll go do it. Is a refusal to believe in the sovereignty of God. It's a refusal to submit ourselves to God. It's a refusal to see him as supreme, right? So we don't find these things resting and, and being in accordance with scripture. And so we need to submit all things that are said to an investment in investigating his word. Do they do they accord with sound doctrine? Now, some of us, we haven't thought of the word doctrine in a long time, and theology sounds like a terrifying word, and we find ourselves being deluded by the issue of pragmatism. So the overriding question that we ask and that we live our lives by of, tell me this, does it work? Does it work? Because listen, if it works, I'm willing to try it for a time. And so we live our lives this way. And so we're not basing our decisions and we're not moving forward in decisions for our church and for our family and, and our relationship with the Lord of, is it true and is it in Scripture? But we're living our lives in the much easier lens of, does it work and is it personally fulfilling to me? Both bad theology and pragmatism will lead you down a path that leads you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But so will this last one, the idea of modeled apathy. Some of the things that, that lead people away from the gospel and centrality to the gospel and submission to Jesus is the, way, the, the ways that you and I, or some of us, model our relationship with Jesus. We are modeling apathy. Over and again, we hear parents that when their kids go off to college and their children abandon the gospel and, 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 and they're just broken, but some of us as parents, if, if we are honest, what we have demonstrated to our children for years is that faith is great for you. We're going to take you to Awana. Faith is great for you. We're going to put you in a Christian school. Faith is great for you. We're going to homeschool you. Faith is great for you. We're going to encourage you to read your Bible. But faith is something I'm past. Faith isn't all that valuable. We're not going to attend church when it's an inconvenience. Faith isn't all that important. We're not going to attend church when there's a vacation. Faith isn't all that important. We're not going to attend it if they're going to have it early in the morning. Faith isn't all that important. We're not going to watch it if it interferes with something else. Your children recognize what are priorities in your life by what you give time to, by what you dedicate yourselves to. Some of us are finding that what we've dedicated ourselves to, our kids are following in that pursuit of what we've done, not what we've told them to do. So what we see in this is we have, we have unwittingly led our own children astray. We have led our neighbors astray. We have led our friends astray because we have not ourselves been dedicated to follow Jesus. He says, I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And he offers this encouragement, verse 5, to the church that's ready. He says, for though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. 
Paul looks at this church that is facing all kinds of difficulty, that is facing this real onslaught of heresy. And, and the text gives us the idea that he's rejoicing in the midst of sin. So he's not just looking at a Polaroid. He's investing himself, investigating how they're doing, and he is excited for them. Why? Because they are decidedly Christ-dependent and ready. And they're ready for the onslaught. They're ready to be active for the advancement of the gospel. They're ready for the propagation of the gospel. They are ready to stand for Christ. As we look to coming back on May the 24th, we have an opportunity to come back, to rest and relax. Or we have an opportunity to be ready. We have an opportunity to be ready to allow this not to be a setback, but to be a reset. We have an opportunity not to be discouraged by the way we spent this time, but to double down and say, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life this way. I have learned my lesson in this time, but now I'm going to be ready for the expansion of the gospel, ready to be used by Jesus. If Paul were to show up at Ridgecrest, would he see that we are standing in good order in the firmness of our faith in Christ? Notice where their faith is. Their faith isn't in their trailing list of accomplishments, but their faith rests in Jesus, the same Jesus who's knitting them together in love and is strengthening them as they are corporately knit together in love. And church, I am excited to see y'all again, to be together again. But the picture of the church here is amazing. Paul gives us this, this phenomenal picture of a church that is empathetic, a church that is unified, a church that is Christ-dependent, and a church that is ready. Think of what we could do. Think of what he could do through us here and everywhere. Will we be ready? Will you be ready? Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for your son Jesus, for the life that we have in him, for the forgiveness of sins that we enjoy in him. And God, I pray that we would put our faith and confidence in your son Jesus. God, I pray for those who have not yet surrendered to the gospel. Father, that today would be the day that they reach out and have a conversation, that they send us a message or an email. And they begin to have a conversation with somebody about what it looks like to follow Jesus, your son whom you sent to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That in our sins we were separated and far from the Lord, but that you brought us near in the person of Jesus. We can be forgiven. We can be restored. We can have salvation in his name. God, help us as a church to be ready. Help us as a church to follow you. And we submit these things to you in your son's name. Amen.